Good afternoon. Well, at least good afternoon from Jerusalem. My name is Ashira Yosefa, and I'm broadcasting this class from Jerusalem. It's a beautiful sunny day here. The purpose of this class, the first in our series on Noahide Nation's new uh, online uh, virtual yeshiva training, Torah learning, learning on the Sheva Mitzvot. In this class, what I would like to do is, one, introduce you to your instructor, introduce you to the organization that I represent, who we are and who and what we teach from here in Israel, to give you an overview of the classes that will be coming up over the next couple of months on Noahide Nations through the Noah chat room and virtual yeshiva. And then towards the end of the class, we'll do a short shiur, which in Hebrew means class. We'll do a short lesson on the Torah and aspects of the Torah and how the, the Noahide mitzvot fit into that. Okay, let's begin. As I mentioned to you, my name is Ashira Yosefa. Ashira means I will sing. It comes from the Torah in Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea, in Exodus 15.1 where it says, Ashira Lashem, I will sing to Hashem. Yosefa is the female form of Yosef, and it means God will add. I live in the heart of Jerusalem, just a 20-minute walk from the Kotel. Now, they say not to ask a woman her age. And in Judaism, Halakha provides that you are not to ask a convert about their past, given that they are like a newly born child when they leave the mikvah. But I'm about to break both rules. And I'll explain to you why. I am a Jew by choice. In August of last year, on the first day of the tragic expulsion of our people from Gush Katif, I entered the waters of a mikveh and emerged from them being simultaneously 50 years old and one minute old. In fact, the date, the 12th of Av, just happened to be the exact Hebrew date on which I was born half a century ago. I moved to Eretz Israel three years ago and completed an Orthodox conversion here in Jerusalem. Now, as a convert, I am not required to share this. My past is considered a closed book now that I'm a Jew. It does not have to be opened, nor am I required to answer questions concerning it. However, the path upon which Hashem brought me to Judaism is one that has placed me in a unique position for the work that I now do here in Israel and for the responsibilities which I believe Hashem would have me accept. I guess you could say I've walked a mile in the other's shoes. And from my perspective, I can understand and relate to B'nai Noach, to Jews, and to people that are in this spiritual transition where they're leaving their previous beliefs and trying to find spiritual truth, trying to find their spiritual identity. Now in Hebrew, we have an expression, lo mikre. This translates to no coincidence. If you move a couple of the Hebrew letters around in this short saying, you get rak mi Hashem, only from Hashem. This is how I regard all things in life. There are no mistakes. Even though we as humans do make mistakes, none of our decisions come as surprises to the creator of the universe. He has chosen where and as whom we are born, and he intervenes providentially throughout the rest of our lives according to his perfect wisdom, which is infinitely higher and totally unlike our limited human perspective. Each step, each season of our lives, past and present, has been allowed by Hashem and has presented us with choices, choices that allow us to exercise the Behera, the free will God gave us for good or for bad, to hasten our tikkun, our spiritual maturing, our spiritual perfection, or to impede it. I am a Jew, but I was not always a Jew. In fact, my becoming a Jew was a seven-year process. I grew up in a non-religious home, became a Christian, a very active and charismatic one, then became a Messianic, then an Ephraimite, one from the Lost Tribes movements, where I was even an ordained Ephraimite teacher and leader. All of these were stages that drew me closer and closer to the Torah and to the Tanakh, which ignited within my soul the dormant spark of my Jewish neshama. 
That spark flickered and grew until it took the form of the magnet within my heart and mind that simply would not rest until I was a Jew. But this does not mean that I believe everyone who feels drawn to Torah should convert. In fact, quite the contrary. In fact, I now understand ever so much more succinctly why people need to be taught and to understand the true nature and the application of the seven universal laws known as the Noahide Commandments. Don't get me wrong. I do not regret one second of the tumultuous path that God led me on to becoming an Orthodox Jew. But I also understand now so much better why it is the rabbis discourage potential converts and for the most part most of the people who are now feeling drawn to the Torah whether you consider yourself of an Enoch or whether you're an adherent to one of the lost tribe movements or if you're from some other faith identity or if you've left your previous beliefs and are searching for a spiritual identity if you've left your spiritual identity, your previous identity or religion because of the influence of Torah upon your life, then at one point or another you will have considered the question of conversion, either remotely or seriously. There is rarely a week that passes that I do not receive email from people with inquiries in this regard. Because of my own spiritual evolution, I'm now able to understand and relate to the stages of transformation that have occurred or may be occurring in the lives of B'nai Noach and those considering conversion or those considering leaving or changing their present beliefs. And it's from this perspective that we would approach the classes in the months ahead to help people identify the areas which might be opportunities for growth to help people identify areas that could be op obstacles to growth, to clarify a lot of the matters and a lot of the many questions that come up when a person is changing or has changed the beliefs that they grew up with. In the classes that lie ahead of us, we will be identifying and exploring many aspects of this change or transformation in spiritual identity, the personal and community problems that may accompany it, the upheaval it can bring to a person's life, and it usually does. We will explore just how little understood and how far-reaching the seven universal laws truly are. In fact, this lack of understanding is not exclusive to non-Jews. The truth is, most Jews really are not familiar with the seven Noahide commandments either. In our next class, God willing, we will be doing a historical overview of the Noahide commandments and we will gain a better understanding of why there is such ambiguity about these foundational principles for a proper relationship between the creator of the universe and all of mankind. Simply and emphatically, the seven universal laws are the measuring stick by which any religion can be evaluated. If a religion contradicts these basic laws, it is necessarily flawed. With God's help in the weeks ahead, we will look back to the foundation of faith in the creator of the universe, the seven universal laws, and look forward to the Torah of which they form an integral part. The Torah is given by God directly to Moshe on Har Sinai in the form of the most complete revelation of God that can exist in this world until the world to come. Now let's acquaint you with Shuvu, the organization that I represent. And then we will touch on the Noahide laws, talk a bit about the topics to be discussed over the next couple of months, and then move into a shiur on the Torah and how it interfaces with the Noahide commandments before we close. I'm the director of Shuvu. Shuvu is an internet outreach program operated by Admatai, which is a nonprofit organization registered here in Israel that has created an ideological partnership of leading Torah educators who are interested in providing Torah-based education and outreach to non-Jews. We have a number of projects underway, the first of which is a website at www.shuvu.com. 
shuvoo.com. We have a weekly newsletter that can be subscribed for on the website and a number of educational projects that are still in the planning stages. We are privileged to have Rabbis Chaim Richman, Avraham Greenbaum, and Mayor Abishthera on our board of directors. Each one of these men are known for their Torah scholarship and their compassionate consideration for B'nai Noach and outreach to non-Jews. We have a growing list of many other highly respected rabbis here in Israel who make articles available for the Shubu website and to whom we can refer when answering the many questions we receive from B'nai Noach and from others who are seeking truth and trying to find their true spiritual identity. Shuvu is a Hebrew word, a verb, which means return. In fact, its tense is both active and emphatic, as in you return. We've drawn this name for our outreach program from a verse in the book written by the prophet Malachi. Ever since the days of your fathers, you've turned away from my statutes and haven't observed them. Shuvu Eli. Return to me, and Ashuvah, I will return, to you, says God of hosts. Malachi 3, verse 7. Shuvu is about returning to God, whether one is a Jew or a B'nai Noach. In fact, we are all B'nai Noach, Jew and non-Jew alike. Noach was the second father of mankind, Adam being the first. Given that we all descend from Adam, we are all God's creations, and we all need to consider the quality of the relationship that we maintain with the creator of the universe and the creation that he placed us in. Jews have been given a particular role as Hashem's witnesses to the nations, but we must still look back beyond Avraham to Noach. We also know that God promised Avraham that he would become the father of many nations. During this series of classes on Noahide nations, through the Noah chat room on virtual yeshiva, I will be referring to the seven Noahide commandments as primarily the universal laws or the Sheva mitzvot. I will also refer to B'nai Noach as God-fears and the righteous among the nations. The reason for this is that unfortunately, in some circles, there is a stigma attached to the term B'nai Noach and to the Noahide commandments. While B'nai Noach is the halakhically acceptable and traditional term in the Talmud for the righteous God-fears among the nations, a lack of understanding of these laws, combined with efforts on the part of certain religions to undermine their significance, has resulted in a good bit of negativity becoming associated with the two terms. In an effort to counter this negativity, for any who might be participating in these classes who are perhaps new and inquisitive concerning the seven universal laws, we want you to understand them in their true beauty and intent as an elevation of mankind in our relationship to God and with one another. A common slur that is often heard in certain circles is the comment, why would you want to be content with only seven commandments when the Torah contains 613? Sometimes this comment is followed by a suggestion that the rabbis just want to keep non-Jews from learning and following Torah. The general tone is, of course, derogatory. The reality is that these seven foundational guidelines to a righteous standing before God are actually portals. They are gateways to an ever-increasing life of observance, if you desire it. The seven universal laws can be compared to chapter headings within the most exciting book of all time, the Torah. These laws are expansive. You can fulfill the minimum requirement, or you can aspire to the maximum, which is a level that seems to grow with each passing year as the rabbis rediscover and re-examine the significance and application of these ancient guidelines for the nations. Each of the basic guidelines opens up to ever so many more related commandments within the Torah, if one wishes to increase their level of observance and commitment. 
Some sources say there are 33 laws for B'nai Noach. Others say there are 66 laws. Still others contend that almost all of the Torah commandments are applicable to the nations with the notable exception of laws that are specifically designed for the Kohanim, the Levites, the Temple Service, exclusively for Jews, and those commandments that can only be done in the land of Israel. It's interesting that in the 11th century, Rav Nisim Gaon included listening to God's voice, knowing God, and serving God, besides going on to say that all religious acts which can be understood through human reasoning are obligatory upon Jew and Gentile alike. That leaves the doorway open to a very broad expanse of Torah observance. And one of the key complaints that we often hear from people is that they're afraid that they'll be limited by the seven Noahide laws, that they want more. The reality is that those seven commandments, those seven mitzvot, are portals. They're openings to ever so much more. You can start slowly, build the foundation, and then you can grow. And particularly now that so much attention is becoming focused upon the Noahide commandments and upon B'nai Noach because of recent developments with the developing Sanhedrin here in Israel and the general awareness that's increasing amongst the Rebbeim and the Orthodox community here in Israel. The rabbis are re-examining these things. They're looking at halakhic issues. And I think we're just at the beginning of, I would liken it to a rosebud that's beautiful at its point of being a bud. But as it opens, and it opens slowly, but as it opens, it is ever so much more beautiful. And that's what we're seeing now. The passage of time has layered darkness, deception, distortion, and confusion upon both the seven universal laws and the Torah. It's a fact. Neither one of them is truly understood by the nations of our present time. Tragically, the Torah is not understood by all Jews, especially Jews who have found their way to other religions through assimilation or proselytizing. Shuvu was created to help illuminate the ancient paths of return to the Torah foundations established by God in order that all mankind might merit the revelation of Mashiach and the redemption of the world. Now let's take a look at the course outline for the next couple of months. The next session, God willing, will be a historical overview of the seven universal laws, their impact upon mankind throughout history, as well as their 2,000 year dormancy prior to this modern resurgence of interest in and adherence to the Noahide commandments. Following that, we will begin in June and July with two one-month series of classes. The online classes will run weekly on Thursdays at 10 a.m. EST, live from Israel. The classes will be divided into two month-long themes. Learning from Noah and following Avraham will be held during June. In July, we will be doing Obstacles to Spiritual Clarity. Under learning from Noah and following Avraham during the month of June, we'll do four weeks of classes. The first week will focus on knowing God, defining his oneness. What does it mean when we say Hashem is one? Looking at creation, how do we know God through creation? What is our obligation to God as a B'nai Noach, as a Jew? The second week, we'll talk about returning to God. What is free will? What does it allow us to do? How free is free will? How does free will apply to B'nai Noach? What is repentance? Or as we say in Hebrew, tshuva. Why is it so powerful? Is there any difference in how it relates to Jews and to non-Jews? And we'll look at providence. Hashkacha partis. How does God intervene in our lives? Then we'll discuss in the third week, God willing, seven or seventy. How many of the Torah laws can Abinah keep? And how should we observe them? What are their origins in Torah? How do they function as portals to many more mitzvot? 
We'll talk about obedience as an attitude. And then we'll talk about the fact that within the Talmud, we are told that the Ben or Bat Noach, who takes an oath of allegiance to keep the Sheva Mitzvot, the Noahide commandments, and takes this oath before a bit din, is considered to be as righteous as the high priest. So we'll see that the Noahide mitzvot truly are an elevation of mankind. Then we'll talk about leaving the fold, handling the consequences of changing one's religion. And during that class, I will have a special guest in the room at that point, Helene Finkelstein, who is a spiritual therapist here in Jerusalem, who will talk about a lot of the issues that people face when they are leaving one religion and moving into another, because certainly those changes affect our marriages, they affect our families, they affect our children, they can affect our work. So we'll be discussing those issues in that class. During the month of July, we'll focus on obstacles to spiritual clarity. In the first class, we'll talk about presumed identities and resisting the scepter. We'll talk about identity theft. Are we guilty of it? This is an area that is particularly sensitive amongst Jews and one that most non-Jews are not aware of. And it's something that if any of us have had any contact with the various lost tribe movements, is something that's a particular concern. There's been a tremendous Jewish roots movement over the last decade or more. And within it are things that non-Jews do because they so want to learn the Torah and they so want to be as God's people that sometimes we cross a line and we actually do things that in the eyes of Jews are considered identity theft. And what it does is undermine what we're trying to achieve in terms of restored relationships between Jews and non-Jews. We'll talk about the Torah. It's not in heaven. Moshe said it's in your heart, in your mouth. What did he mean by this? And we'll also talk about who holds the scepter for Judah. There was a teaching a few years ago that was going about through North America saying that based upon the blessing that Yaakov gave to Judah, that the scepter should not pass from Judah nor lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to whom is the obedience of the peoples. There was a teaching based upon a blessing that Moshe gave during the uh, time when he blessed the tribes and he blessed the, the tribe of God before Moshe's death. There was a teaching going about a few years ago that, that put forward the premise that Jews no longer had the authority to interpret the Torah. We're going to look at that because it has caused a lot of problems for many people. We're going to talk about spiritual pride and spiritual mixtures, the legacy left to us by Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. We'll talk about these lingering legacies from our past beliefs and religions that create attitudes within us that affects our ability to learn. We might not even know we have those attitudes. We'll talk about a teaching of Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman taught that when we think we know God, when we think that we're really close to Hashem, that it's at that point that we're actually the furthest away from Him. He taught that the less we realize that we know, the closer that we are. And so we'll look at what does this actually practically mean in our spiritual development. And then we'll talk about spiritual mixtures. Something old, something new, something borrowed, not. Because there's a very strong teaching in Tanakh and in the Torah where Hashem shows us that He sets forth the guidelines, how He wants us to approach Him. And we have to be very careful that we don't mix elements from other beliefs and worship systems into it. And in our final class during the month of July, we'll talk about resisting authority, a human condition with spiritual consequences. We'll talk about how it limits our capacity for revelation. We'll take a look at Moshe. God called him the most humble man on earth. In Hebrew there's a word for it, anav. It's a very special word and it has nuances that the English word humble simply does not convey. So we'll talk about Moshe's example. We'll again talk about a teaching by Rabbi Nachman. 
wherein before every ascent spiritually, usually there's a descent. There's a valley before every a valley before every mountain, and we'll take a look about how that can apply to our lives and our journey as we as we grow in the Noahide mitzvot, as we grow in our spiritual journey and our knowledge of Torah from day to day and week to week. And then we'll talk about how do we merge the internal and external elements of all this to enable us to progress spiritually. Now that's an overview of the classes ahead. There'll be one more introductory class later this month. And then beginning in June, we'll take a look at learning from Noah and following Abraham. And then we'll take a look at obstacles to spiritual clarity. Now let's have a shiur on the Torah. I've entitled this shiur, Revealing God's Soul and Operating Ours. One Shabbat, back in 2003. Candy, welcome to the room. One Shabbat, back in 2003, in the month of March, I attended a small Kalbach shul in Manhattan. Chabad Rabbi Yosef Jacobson was the scholar-in-residence for Shabbaton the shul was hosting that weekend. He gave an electrifying Devar Torah on Shabbat morning that I have never forgotten. He described the Torah as the song of the universe. We are each a note in that divine symphony. If we do not elevate ourselves to attain the note that is uniquely ours, then the divine symphony does not resonate like it should. Our lives are a process of tuning playing and tuning again over and over again until we reach the fullness of the note that is ours alone. No one else can play the note that God intended for each one of us. That note is ours, it belongs to no one else, and without us playing that note and reaching the pitch and the tone that it's meant to be, then the song of the universe doesn't play with the fullness and the beauty that God intends it. The Torah is eternal. It was there in the beginning. It was an active vehicle of the process of creation. At the end of days, we will finally be able to behold and understand the fullness of its majesty and wonder. The rabbis tell us that everything can be found in the Torah. Just watch carefully the events in the world from week to week and begin to compare them to the weekly Torah and Haftarah portions. You will be astounded at the parallels you will find. For those who may be interested, Rabbi Yol Schwartz, the Av Beit Din for B'nai Noach on the developing Sanhedrin, provides our Shuvu website with a weekly parasha commentary that's written expressly for B'nai Noach. The website URL is www.shuvu.com and there's a link right on the home page for Rob Schwartz's weekly parasha commentary. So what is the Torah? Many people will say it's various things laws, history. In its simplest sense, Torah means teaching, but it is so much more. The more you learn about it, the more you realize there is to learn about it. It is a book of laws, yes. It is a book of history. It is a book of theory and philosophy. It is a book of science and medicine far more sophisticated and advanced than we had any idea. Quantum physics is proving that Jewish Kabbalists had the universe figured out centuries ago. Torah is the revealed wisdom of the Creator, contracted and veiled in progressive layers of concealment, analogy, anthropomorphisms, parables, imagery, and deeply embedded codes until it can be grasped by our finite and limited human minds and hearts.
Anthropomorphisms are those expressions frequently used in Torah that attribute human characteristics to God so that we can understand the characteristics and qualities that are encompassed within him. Examples would be by a mighty and outstretched arm, Deuteronomy 4.34, or I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen, Exodus 33.23. God does not have a face, a back, hands or arms. But the use of descriptions such as these communicate qualities of strength, qualities of care and compassion, attributes of concealment and revelation. The rabbis tell us that each commandment of Torah, each Torah concept has 70 facets. Torah is like a diamond. The more you turn it and examine it, the more sparks of light you will see. And the Noahide commandments being such an integral part of the Torah, are the same. They are multifaceted. You hold them up to the light, you study them, you consider them, and you'll see more and more aspects to them that make them so much more expansive than a person might realize the first time that they're introduced to the Sheva Mitzvot. The Torah is the embodiment of the first commandment. In Hebrew, it's Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am Hashem your God. In the Talmud, in Gemara Shabbat 104a, at the end of Parak Habone, there is an interesting makloket on the Hebrew letters that spell Anochi. The Hebrew letters are Aleph, Nun, Chaf, and Yud. If you take these and build the little analogy, the story that the Mahlachet presents, it goes as follows. Aleph, Ana, meaning I. Nun, Nafshi, my soul. Chaf, Ketivat, wrote. Yud, Yehavit, gave it. Ana, Nafshi, Ketivat, Yehavit. Anochi. I wrote my soul and gave it in writing. This is Torah. God gave himself to us in the Torah. His wisdom and will are contained in Torah. The creator of the universe, unseen and unfathomable, wrapped his infinite essence in robes of Torah in order that we might comprehend, comprehend that he is. He gave it as a gift to teach us how to purify and elevate our bodies and souls in order that we might aspire to unity with our Maker. Within this Torah are the Sheva Mitzvot. The Sheva Mitzvot are incumbent upon all of mankind, Jew and non-Jew alike. In Judaism, there is a midrash about a king who had a daughter. Along came a prince one day who desired to marry the daughter. In the midrash, the king represents Hashem. The daughter represents the Torah. The prince is Israel. The king found himself in a dilemma. He thought to himself, I love my daughter so much, I cannot bear to separate from her, and yet I cannot not let her go. So the king instructed the young couple, wherever you go, build a room for me that I might be with you. Wherever we go, we are to make room for Torah. This midrash illuminates the meaning of Hashem's words to Moshe in Exodus 25 verse 8. Let them build me a sanctuary that I, might dwell, that I may dwell among them. What was at the heart of that physical sanctuary? In the Ark of the Covenant, in the Aron HaKodesh, the Holy of Holies. It was the two tablets inscribed with the ten words, the ten commandments. The prophet Yeshua, Isaiah, 
was told by Hashem that the future temple will be a house of prayer for all peoples. We find this in Isaiah 56 verse 7. Zechariah echoed this when he spoke of many nations and peoples coming from every tongue to worship Hashem in Yerushalayim. They will attach themselves to Jews because they will yearn to be taught about Hashem. We find this in Zechariah 8 verses 20 to 23. Both Yoel and Yeshayahu spoke of the day when the Torah would go forth from Sion and the word of Hashem from Yerushalayim. We are seeing some of these prophecies coming to pass in our own lifetime. Never before in history has so much Torah gone forth to the nations of the world from Yerushalayim. And with every passing year, more and more people from the nations are turning to Jews, are turning to the rabbis, are seeking to learn about Torah. The rabbis tell us that they get as many, if not more, non-Jews contacting them through their websites than they do Jews. This is a phenomenal thing to them. The numbers of B'nai Noach, of God-fearing righteous Gentiles, grows daily. We are living in amazing and very, very wonderful times. The 613 commandments in Torah fall into three categories. Mishpatim, the ordinances. Edod, the precepts, and Chukim, the statutes. Mishpatim, the ordinances, are commands we can understand. Usually their application is obvious. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Honor your mother and father. Edod, the precepts, are commandments for which the significance must be explained such as the commands for Israel to observe Pesach and Shabbat, the first commemorating the exodus from Egypt, the latter honoring creation and being an eternal sign of the covenant between God and Israel. Chukim, the statutes, are deeply mysterious commands which we accept that we must obey even though we really cannot understand them. Examples of Chukim are the various laws of Kashrut, the dietary laws, and of Shatnez, the laws of forbidden mixtures, such as the prohibition on Jews for wearing a garment made of wool and linen, or sowing our field with two types of seed. The laws of Nida, of family purity, also constitute Chukim. These mysterious statutes intrinsically hint to the inner essence of God, the infinite creator who cannot be grasped by our finite intelligence. Human beings are composed of a body and a soul. The soul is a spark of the divine, part of the creator who gave it. The body is a finite creation formed of the dust of the earth. It is the vehicle which enables the soul to complete its rectification and make its impression on the world around us. Our body is like a shoe worn by the soul that enables our soul to leave its footprints upon the sands of time and place. In a future lesson, we will learn how the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lozato, views this relationship between body and soul and how beautifully it parallels spiritual realities in the heavenly realms that God was actually showing us when he gave us this composition of body and soul he was teaching us about spiritual realities that exist between this realm and the spiritual realm between ourselves and him. The soul and the body are not exclusive of one another. If they are not working in harmony, there are problems that are usually evident to both the individual and to those around them. Body and soul make up a sophisticated system that requires an operating manual and that manual is Torah. For those who desire to live righteously before their Creator, the seven universal laws are the basic manual to effectively operate this body-soul system. As with most basic systems, there is the capacity to upgrade to a more advanced level of functionality. For Jews who have been given the responsibility to be a nation of priests and Hashem's witnesses to the world at large, the operating manual is much more extensive. 
For both Jew and non-Jew, adherence to God's commands for each elevates the soul and enhances its ability to transform the body into a vessel through which God is revealed, with the spark of the divine in each of us radiating outward. As with physical flame, one spark is all that it takes to ignite another flame. The Torah, with the seven universal laws contained within it, holds the instructions on how to keep our body from interfering with the intended function of our soul. Israel was commanded to build a sanctuary for God to dwell in our midst. That dwelling place during the Messianic age will be like Avraham's tent. It will be open on all sides, meaning it will be open to all peoples. When we are invited to someone's home for a celebration, we usually try to abide by certain rules of proper conduct. The seven universal laws, the seven Noahide commandments, not only enable mankind to elevate their souls and bodies so that the light of God may be revealed through them, but they are also the manual of etiquette for the dwelling place of Hashem. May its presence be established on Har Habayit speedily in our days. That's the end of this shiur. Does anyone have any questions? Candy, did you have any questions? Candy, do you uh, have you came into the room a little later? Have you any questions maybe about the classes to come up? Would you like me to review the classes for June and July? Okay. Let's just review then the classes that will be coming up. The next class, the next introductory class, will be, I believe, in a couple of weeks. It will be on the schedule on Virtual Yeshiva. It will be a historical overview of the seven universal laws and their impact upon mankind throughout history, as well as this 2,000-year dormancy that they've been in since the beginning of the, the Christian era. And then we're going to talk about why now there are so many people turning to the Noahide mitzvot. Why now is it coming to the forefront? There's hundreds of thousands uh, of B'nai Noach at this time, and there's hundreds of thousands more who are out there identifying themselves as lost tribes and so on. What we've got literally are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are searching. And the B'nai Noach commandments, the Noahid Mitzvot, are some of the most misunderstood things in all of religious theory, of religious, um, how do I want to put, let's put it this way. They haven't been spoken about for about 2,000 years, and because of that there's a lot of misunderstanding. Because we as Jews have not been teaching them as we should for the past 2,000 years, and there's reasons for that, good ones, which we'll get into in the next class. Um, but now that we're back in our land in, in Israel, it's incumbent upon us to teach them. And so we have to reacquaint ourselves as well, and the rabbis are doing that now. So we're going to take a look at, from the Torah and through history, how have the Noahide mitzvot impacted history? How have B'nai Noah impacted history? What has been the result? Why did they go silent for 2,000 years and why are they such uh, an important factor in the world at this present time? Then during June and July, we will have two one-month series of classes. They'll be on Thursdays at 10 a.m. EST, live from Israel. During June, we will be doing learning from Noah and following Avraham. In the first class, we'll be talking about knowing God. How do we know God from his oneness? When we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Achad, Hero Israel, Hashem is your God, Hashem is one. What do we mean by one? And how do the nations relate to God as one? How can we know him through this oneness? How can we know him through creation? He gave us creation to declare that he is. Avraham understood that God was one and there was no other because he saw him revealed in creation. 
So we're going to talk about knowing God through creation and how that fits in to being B'nai Noach. And we're going to talk about our obligation. What are our obligations in knowing God? What are the obligations of a B'nai Noach, of Ben or Bat Noach to God? In the second class, we'll talk about returning to God. We'll talk about free will. In Hebrew, it's called Bechera. What does that mean? How free is that free will? How does it impact upon our lives? If we say that Hashem is sovereign and in control, what does that mean? So we'll take a look at how does our free will affect our lives and affect our process of return to God. We'll talk about repentance, tshuva. How does that impact upon us? Is repentance different between Jews and non-Jews? Or is it the same? What is repentance? And this is another area that is particularly misunderstood. I mean, I can say this because I wasn't always a Jew. But repentance, as it is understood in most Christian circles, is not at all repentance like it's understood and like it's explained within Torah. So we'll take a look at the element of repentance and how, how do we truly repent? What are the steps involved? And we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about how repentance is always open to us and that forgiveness is always available. And then we'll talk about providence, God's providence, hashkaha pratis. How does that impact our lives? How does God intervene in our lives? In the third class, we're going to be talking about seven or seventy. How many commandments can we keep if we're keeping the Noahide commandments? Is it just seven or is it many more? And as I explained earlier in this class, there are different opinions, but with every week that passes, with every month that passes, as the rabbis review these and discuss these, it is obvious that the seven Noahide commandments are portals that open up to much, much more Torah observance, which totally dispels the argument that is often raised when one talks about the Noahide commandments. People will say, well, you only want seven. Why don't you want 613 if you're interested in Torah? We're going to talk about how the seven are actually chapter headings of much, much more. We'll talk about their origins within the Torah, We'll talk about obedience as an attitude. And then we're going to talk about how in the Talmud it tells us that the Benarbat Noach who takes who pledges allegiance to the Noahide commandments, especially if they do so before a Beit Din, and we know that the developing Sanhedrin is, is discussing how to establish Beit Din now, Bate Din throughout America, so B'nai Noach can take these oaths of allegiance, that the ben, the ben or the Bat Noach who takes an oath of allegiance to keep the Sheva Mitzvot is considered as righteous as the high priest. Now that is quite an elevation. So we're going to see that the keeping of the Noahide mitzvot is an elevation of mankind. It is not a slight toward the nations as some uh, religious circles sometimes like to try to, uh, to indicate. And then in our final class during June, we're going to talk about leaving the fold, handling the consequences of changing one's religion. And during that class, we'll have a guest uh, on the show, on the, on the shore, Helene Finkelstein, who is a spiritual therapist here in Jerusalem, who helps people deal with the difficulties that we encounter within our lives, with our friends, our, our families, at work, within our marriages. When one person changes within a community or a group, um, Sometimes there's consequences, and they're not always easy. There's tremendous sacrifice to becoming a, a Ben or a Bat Noach, and at times it can be a tremendously lonely journey. So we're going to talk about how do we handle that. In the month of July, we'll be talking about obstacles to spiritual clarity. The first class will be on presumed identities and resisting the scepter. We'll talk about identity theft. Are we guilty of it? And this is something that's very near and close to the heart of Jews. And we'll take a look at the Jewish roots movements and how sometimes without intending to, um, non-Jews can cause offense to Jews in their attempts to draw near um, to Torah by uh, 
by taking on certain Jewish traditions perhaps a little more than they should. So we're going to talk about the issues of identity theft. You know, what is good and, and what is a little too much. We're going to talk about the Torah in terms, Moshe said it's not in heaven, uh, it's in our heart and in our mouth to do it. So we're going to talk about what does that mean. We're going to talk about who holds the scepter for Judah. In the book of Genesis in chapter 49 verse 10, uh, Yaakov uh, was placing the blessings uh, on his sons before his death and he said the scepter shall not pass from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes unto whom is the obedience of the peoples. We're going to talk about does that still apply today because there was a teaching in, in recent years that said that based on a blessing that Moshe gave to the tribe of God before his death that the scepter had passed from Judah. Well, we're going to take a look at that and see that the scepter hasn't gone anywhere and why. We're going to talk about spiritual pride and spiritual mixtures in our second class in July. This is the legacy of Yerobam. We'll talk about the lingering legacies of our previous beliefs, uh, how it creates attitudes within it that affect our ability to learn Torah, and we might even know, might even not know that we've got those those attitudes. We're going to talk um, about how the less one knows, the closer you are. This is based upon a teaching of Rabbi Nachman, in which he said that if we think we know Hashem, if we feel that we're really close to Hashem, then unfortunately at that point we're actually furthest away from Him. It's a wonderful teaching by Rabbi Nachman and we're going to explore it and what is the proper attitude for us to have. It doesn't mean that we have to feel distant from Hashem but there's, there's some secrets here that will help us uh, to really develop a closer relationship with God. We're going to talk about uh, a little something called spiritual mixtures. Something old, something new, something bowed, not and how the Torah tells us that we're not to mix worship traditions, that Hashem tells us how he wants us to approach him, and that there is a tremendous richness in that that really doesn't need to have other things added to it. And then in our final class in July, we're going to talk about resisting authority, a human condition uh, that has spiritual consequences, how we can limit our capacity for revelation, uh, how we can learn from Moshe. He was called in the Torah the humblest man uh, in the world. But in Hebrew the word used, for, uh, used to describe Moshe as humble is anav. And that's a very unique word that does not translate well into the English humble. And so we're going to discover what does that mean and what can we learn from that that will help us to, to learn more Torah. We're going to do another teaching on Rabbi Nachman, from Rabbi Nachman, wherein he teaches that there's always a valley before a mountain. And we'll see this throughout our lives as we, as we try to, to develop our relationship, to grow closer to Hashem, that there's usually a descent before every ascent spiritually. And if we're not prepared for it, then sometimes those descents can really knock us off balance. And so we'll explore how we can prepare ourselves for these times where we seem to dip into a valley before we begin uh, to climb again spiritually. And then we're going to talk about how we merge these things. How do we merge all the internal workings with the external factors so that we can aspire towards progress spiritually. So that's an overview of the classes for June and July. Um, Candy, I thank you for joining the class. I think we're just about at the end of the class for now. I hope you'll join us next week. Do you have any questions before we close off? Ashira, you would mentioned uh, earlier in the class that uh, uh, you're going to have one more class at the end of the uh, uh, month of May and maybe I misunderstood you uh, but I, I, I thought you were going to be teaching uh, this class uh, once a week through May on this day and at this time. Uh, is that uh, correct or, or not? Well perhaps I misunderstood. I thought that there were two classes in May. Uh, however if uh, 
if people want classes every week, then uh, I'll just have to prepare a class for every week. It certainly would be a pleasure. I think so, too. I know for me this uh, uh, class sounds just phenomenal. And I think for uh, uh, those attending the classes in May, uh, it, it'll be great. And uh, certainly I'll prepare uh, uh, the recordings to be replayed on uh, Virtual Yeshiva in the NOAA chat room so that those that weren't able to attend today uh, due to the hour will be able to uh, attend a, the recorded session at uh, uh, a later point when we, when we get that rescheduled. Uh, so I think your class is great. I think you did a phenomenal job. Uh, you sound like you've been doing this for a, a quite some time. Well, uh, in a previous life, uh, yes, I did. Uh, although I must say that it's uh, it's really nice to be back teaching again. In the three years that I've uh, been in Israel, I haven't taught as much as I taught prior to coming to Israel. But then I had a lot of uh, unlearning and relearning to do in my process uh, of becoming a Jew. And it was a necessary process. Um, I think one of the most difficult things about the process of conversion is, uh, especially when you've been a teacher, uh, and in my case I was ordained um, and traveled all over uh, North America teaching and speaking, uh, you have to unlearn or be willing to let go of everything you thought you knew. And amazingly, I discovered that a lot of what I thought I knew wasn't really all that correct. And so it's quite a humbling experience. Uh, it's a real process of uh, starting all over again and relearning. But uh, there's one beautiful thing about the Torah is that it is never ending. The deeper you dig, and the more you find there is to discover. So God willing, uh, hopefully I'll be able to share some of those discoveries with those in the class. And as well, um, I thank Hashem that because of the path that he brought me on, uh, I understand what it's like to have been a Christian. I understand what it's like to be in the process of deciding, should I be up in Enoch? Should I convert? Uh, I understand what it's like to be part of the Lost Tribe Movement. So Hashem brought me through each of those things as stages uh, towards bringing me home to becoming who I am today, an Orthodox Jew. But because he brought me that way, it allows me to uh, relate and to understand and to be able to identify with, with the issues, with the concerns, with the challenges, with the questions that we have along that path. And certainly, as I mentioned earlier in the class, well, conversion uh, is definitely what I was to do, and I don't regret it. It was a very difficult process, uh, especially here in Israel. I don't regret it. It was necessary. Uh, the process that is was necessary. However, I really understand now and I'm much better able to help people understand why it is that, you know, just because you're interested in Torah, it does not mean you have to convert. It's not for everyone. It shouldn't be for everyone. Um, the fact that the Noahide mitzvot are so seriously misunderstood is such a tragedy because they allow a person to live a lifestyle parallel to that of a Torah observant Jew in so many ways. And it really, this, this is a message that needs to get out. So God willing, he'll allow me to, to share that and hopefully we'll be able to help people in the Noah chat room to find the place that is their true spiritual identity and the place where they can really develop the relationship with Hashem. journey that Hashem uh, took you on uh, was obviously a huge benefit uh, for you, uh, but I think uh, uh, in a way you're, you're exactly right. What you've experienced, uh, you can now relate uh, more easily uh, to those who are looking uh, towards Torah uh, as the answer and potentially uh, converting, should I, should I not. Uh, I think you hold uh, a lot of uh, answers uh, to that with uh, uh, intelligent and spiritual uh, advice supporting it. Um, and you know, having first-hand experience certainly is very helpful. So I would have to believe that your course, uh, as much of a benefit as it was for you to take the journey, it could potentially be even more benefit for those who are on that same road uh, taking that journey uh, all around the world. 
So I appreciate you teaching this class for uh, uh, Noahide Nations here on the uh, virtual yeshiva. And uh, uh, as we you know, get more uh, exposure out into the uh, Noahide community and out into the world in general, uh, I think you'll find that uh, uh, your classes in June uh, will have uh, quite a number of students. So I thank you, and uh, you just did a phenomenal job. And uh, thank you, Candy, for uh, joining us in the, in the class today. Yes, Candy, thank you for joining us. And uh, Candy, uh, I'll just mention again, I mean, the, the Noahide Nations has a website which is uh, going to be growing and growing with each, with each week with resources for people who are searching about the Noahide Commandments. And as well, we have a website uh, called shuvu, www.shuvoo.com, where we have Parsha commentaries every week that are written for B'nai Noach, and we have articles from rabbis here in Israel and from ourselves, a weekly newsletter, all designed to help people that are searching and are questioning find the place that is right for them. So I'd invite you to visit the Noahide Nations website. Ray, perhaps you can give us the URL for that, or to visit uh, www.shuvu.com and uh, Goodbye from Jerusalem, and we'll see you next week. Lehitroth.